ahead and open them to Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 is where we're going to be at this morning. If you're a guest here with us, we just want to say welcome. We are so thankful to God that you're here uh, and you've decided to come on a day that hopefully we're nearing the end of uh, the pandemic. Maybe, maybe uh, that's, maybe I'm being optimistic, I don't know. Uh, but, but we're slowly getting back to normal. Uh, school will be starting soon and then we'll be kind of forced to get back to normal. Um, but we're so thankful that you're here. Uh, we're sorry that we can't hug your neck or possibly shake your hand, or maybe we already did one of those things. <laughs> but we are, we are glad that you're here and, uh, and hope you feel welcome. And hope you reach out to us with any questions or thoughts you may have as, as you're visiting today. Uh, so thank you for being here. Uh, so as you're at Acts uh, 8.1, uh, just want to remind you of something I said a few weeks ago, which was that uh, your suffering, your suffering has purpose. You remember me saying this? Um, all these things that happen in our lives that we don't like, that cause us to suffer, they have purpose because we are part of God's mission. It's not meaningless. Therefore, because it has purpose and is not meaningless, it's not something that you and I need to try our hardest to escape as quickly as we possibly can when that comes upon us. I know we don't like it, but I was reminded I was uh, in the gym this week. Uh, when I go to the gym, I put my body under physical stress. My heart beats faster. I sweat. My brain tells me to stop. <laughs> I feel fatigued. There's always a thought in my head to cut out the last few reps of each set or cut out a whole set or not even go to the gym. And this happens because my body doesn't like what I'm putting it through. My body doesn't like the stress and what's happening to it. And so it looks for a way to escape that stress and that pain. But here's the key. If I can remind myself in the midst of that fatigue, in the midst of my heart beating fast and me pouring sweat and me getting really tired, my brain telling me you've done enough, if I can remember the importance of this pain and what it's accomplishing for my body, I can usually make it through. Likewise, this is the same approach we need to take in our Christian lives. For Christians, the storyline of Scripture and the good news of Jesus should give us the greatest perspective about life in the world. However, you and I both know that in the midst of our busy schedules, raising kids, going to school, focusing on our careers, taking care of our families, and other random things like global pandemics, it's easy for us to forget the perspective that Scripture gives us, that the gospel gives us, and live without much noticeable difference from the rest of the world. Right? And so this is why I believe that this message today from Acts 1 or Acts 8 verses 1 through 8 is so timely for us. Today's message title, if you're taking notes, is From Severe Persecution to Great Joy, the Christian's Perspective on Suffering. 
So if you've got your Bibles, let's dive into our text this morning. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Father, will you help us today? Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand what's happening as we read this narrative account of the beginning of your church. How you called your church to depend on your spirit. Your spirit would lead them. How how they devoted themselves to one another. The teaching of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. And God, you did an awesome work. God, in that awesome work... Uh, The enemy came against them. And as we read about that even now, God, I pray that you would help us to rightly understand your providence. Rightly understand your power, God. Rightly understand our place in your mission so that we can live lives with great joy, even amidst pain. Would you help us today, Lord? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you can see, uh, today's text picks up right where last week's text left off. And that's with severe persecution coming against the church. But what's amazing is in these eight verses, just we see severe persecution in verse 1. By verse 8, we see the very same people who are being drugged out of their homes, scattered abroad, and are in Samaria, bringing great joy to that city. Normally, when you think of severe persecution, great joy doesn't come to your mind as being synonymous. Persecution, especially the kind that we see here, is awful. We're told that it's great or severe. This adjective is commonly used throughout the scripture to give Uh, emphasis on the intensity or degree. It's a great degree. But we're also told that Paul was ravaging the church. Now, if you look this word up, you won't find it anywhere else in the Bible. It's a a very, very, very strong word to get across the point that Saul is decimating these early Christians. He's dishonoring them. He's treating them with shame. He's defiling all they hold dear trying to make them a mockery. He enters their homes, their sacred spaces, and he drags them out into the streets. You may have seen in the news this past week that the government, uh, it's actually a little over a week ago, the government, uh, the state of California, said that no churches in California 
uh, were allowed to meet indefinitely. John MacArthur and the elders at Grace Community Church in California believed this to be an overstep of the state's authority, of the government's authority. And so they did what they believed to be right, and that was to gather anyways. Now, I don't know what the civil authorities will do about their gathering in the face of them telling them not to gather, but I want you to imagine for a moment, what if men showed up at John MacArthur's house, kicked down his door, grabbed him and his wife violently, and threw them into prison? A lot like we see in this text. What if this then became the norm across our country? If you were seen gathering with the church, you risk getting your door kicked down and your family hauled off to a detention center. I know what you're thinking. This is too far-fetched. This would never happen in America. And I actually agree. I don't think we're that close to anything like that. But don't miss the point. How outraged, how grieved, how sad, how anxious would this make you if this were a reality? While safety and inalienable rights is something that our country was built on, church, it is not something that our king has promised us on this earth. It's not. In fact, in John 15, 20, Jesus said the opposite. He said, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So after spending a lot of time this week in this passage, scratching my head at how these early Christians were ravaged, taken from their homes, scattered abroad, only to bring great joy to the places in which they've landed, I've come to the conclusion that for them, this must have been expected. Like they must have expected that was going to be the case upon choosing to follow Christ. I really do believe that they believed what Jesus said about suffering for his name. And church, they chose to follow him anyways. But why? Why, if Jesus isn't going to better their lives here on this earth, but rather calls them to live like sojourners, why would they desire to surrender their lives to him and join him on mission? Answer? Because they believed. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus. They believed that this life is not all that they have. They believe that through the resurrection of Jesus, death had lost its sting, and it had become a mere messenger that would take them to their true life and their true home, which meant that this life was all about sharing this good news with as many people as possible in their short, God-allotted time. They desired for all people from every nation to be saved from eternal death and brought into the eternal kingdom of the holy and righteous and risen Christ. Church, listen. They were focused on 
Christ and thus driven to carry out his mission. Driven to carry out his mission. So here's the question I want to pose to you as we begin this morning. Do you share this same perspective as these early Christians? Do you share this perspective? If not, then you will definitely struggle to understand how Philip is violently displaced from Jerusalem and yet hits the ground evangelizing in Samaria. Church, I've personally struggled with this this week. I've, I've, I've struggled to understand this, this perspective, this mentality. As a husband uh, uh, and, and a father of small children, I cannot be honest and tell you that if me and my family were displaced from our home, the first thing I would have on my mind is who all needs to hear the gospel wherever we land. I mean, that's a radical mentality. It's a radical perspective. But it's right. It's right. It's radical, but it's right. It's right we should think this way. I've heard stories of John David Phillips' dad as he lay in beds throughout the years in hospitals and even as he stood beside the bed of his dying wife being intentional and faithful to share the gospel with the doctors and nurses that would come in and out of his room. That's inspiring. But here's why it makes sense. That the Christian can endure suffering, hardships, persecution, and loss. But in the midst of it, still be focused on getting the gospel to those around them. It's a short statement. And I think it sums up these eight verses. Here it is. What the enemy planned as a way to stomp out the gospel and stop the mission, God actually planned as a way to spread the gospel and expand the mission. <laughs> I'm going to read that again. I want this to sink in. How in the world, amidst suffering, loss, persecution, hardships, really difficult times in my life, burdens, Death of those that I love. How in the world, during the middle of those times, can I be focused on getting the gospel to people who I may not even know? This is how, this perspective, what the enemy planned as a way to stomp out the gospel and stop the mission, God actually planned as a way to spread the gospel and expand his mission to the ends of the earth. That's glorious. And some of you probably picked up on this statement that it's similar to a, a, scripture in, uh, a scripture in the Bible. Good job. In Stephen's message, he tells the people listening that Israel has always rejected God's messengers. One of the people who Stephen brings up is Joseph. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. But after Joseph was raised up to power in Egypt and saved from the very and saved the very brothers that rejected him, here's what he says in Genesis 
as for you guys, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. (laughs) And this is what we see all throughout redemptive history, which is the whole point of Stephen's sermon. The Jewish leaders were trying to stomp out Jesus' following by crucifying and rejecting him. But this actually brought forth salvation for the whole world. And their rejection of Stephen now has brought forth the expansion of the gospel to Samaria. Church, this is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. He who sits in the heavens laughs at his enemies. He holds them in derision. Our God is not intimidated, thrown off by anything. In the words of Job, no purpose of the Lord's can be thwarted. And this is our first point this morning. It comes from verse 1. God is sovereign over persecution and execution. The text says that Saul approved or was pleased by Stephen's execution. Commentators suggest that it was this approval and pleasure that brought forth the great persecution. Basically, when these people killed Stephen and Saul sat there and approved, they went buck wild throughout the place. Therefore, it would seem, since uh, Saul is approving and sending these guys out, that he's sovereign here. He's in control. He's calling the shots. He's making things happen, right? Well, we must think back to Jesus' encounter with Pilate, the local Roman ruler of the day. In John 19.10, Pilate says, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and to crucify you? And Jesus responds with, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Christian, what Jesus said to Pilate on that day is absolutely true for you too. Absolutely true. There is nothing nor no one on this planet that is sovereign in your life, over your life, no matter what it may feel at times. No one, nothing. This week I was watching a 109-year-old World War II veteran give an interview. Uh, This man has lived a long time. He's seen a whole lot. And I won't tell you about the whole interview. If you want to see it, you can ask me how to get to it, or you can probably just Google it. Not many 109-year-olds, but this is the takeaway from 12 minutes interview. Here's what this man said. He said, well, I'll tell you what I've learned over my years is that man can kill you, but only God can keep you alive. (laughs) That's wisdom. This is the truth. Man can kill you. Viruses can kill you. Disease can kill you. Vehicle wrecks can kill you. Snake bites can kill you. But only God can keep you alive. But for, but for the Christian, what does it mean to be kept alive? Does it mean that we don't die a physical death? 
Well, surely not. The statistic still is proven that one out of one people die physically. What it means to be kept alive, according to Scripture, is that we remain in Christ. We remain in the one who has defeated death. We remain in the only one who guarantees our resurrection and our eternal life. We remain in his love. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into a fire and burned. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. That's the call for us. Want to be safe and secure? Remain in his love. Only he can keep us truly alive. And if that's the truth, then the question is, what should we fear? Persecution? Sickness? No. No, we should only fear being separated from the love of Christ. But who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, church, in all these things we are more than conquerors for him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's good news. That's powerful news. That's liberating news. That's news that makes us literally invincible until Christ calls us home. That's news that is empowers our witness. That's news that allows us to take risks. That's freeing news. And church, if that news doesn't burst your heart with the greatest sense of freedom, then I'm calling on you to repent. I'm calling on you to cry out to God and confess that this world has caused you to become inebriated. And you need his spirit to sober you up. To remind you that the world, state, and community leaders are not sovereign. To remind you that coronavirus nor cancer is not sovereign. That your bank account is not sovereign. That sin is not sovereign. And that you are not sovereign. (laughs) I've had to personally repent over this this week. How quickly... Can we believe a lie that things are out of the control of our God? Church, this is never true. Never. And this leads us to our second point. Persecution or peace are simply seasons we live in. So in our text this morning, it's obvious that the current season is persecution. But we know from history that this won't always be the case. For instance, in the early 4th century, the emperor Constantine 
will allegedly be converted. I left that word allegedly in there for you history buffs. And Christians will be allowed to worship freely. Throughout history, there will be seasons and specific places where Christian worship is tolerated, celebrated, and persecuted. So I believe it's good that we think of persecution as well as peace, which is the other side of the coin, as seasons we live in. When it becomes winter in Alabama, you dress differently. You put on a coat, maybe boots, unless you're Adam Swan and you're always wearing boots. Or a boggin, tuboggan, beanie, whatever you want to call it. But this is called adjusting to your climate. And it's almost as natural as breathing. If you're cold, you put on more clothing. If you're hot, you tend to take it off. Now, carry this idea over to persecution and peace. In seasons of persecution, the church may not be able to gather like she once did. The church may have to meet in homes or secretly or even underground. The effect here will be a great scattering like we see in verse 4. When this scattering happens, what do we see them continuing to do? Preaching the word. That's what they're doing. Preaching the word. 2 Timothy 4.2 tells us to be ready in season and out of season to what? Preach the word. So they are preaching the word. In verse 5, Philip was very explicit here. Proclaiming Christ. That's what we do when we preach the word, church. We proclaim Christ. Like Adam said last week, we don't take the word and moralize it or spiritualize it. We preach the word proclaiming Christ. We call on people to look to him. To look to the one that can change them. To look to the one that can save them. To look to the one that can conform them to his image. Only he can. And only by looking at him will this happen. Christians get a bad rap in 2020 of being people of the moral high ground. Now, being on the moral high ground isn't wrong unless you're preaching to others. Y'all need to get on up here. Stop all that sinning. Get right. Well, yes, but how? Too often our answer is to not be so unwise. Be wise. Don't do that. Do this. But that's not what Philip nor the early church preached. They preached Christ. And they preached him crucified in their place. They called people to look at him. You know, the Samaritans were people that didn't jive with the Jews. <laughs> the Jews hated them because they were basically blasphemers. They believed their mountain was the holy place, which is the argument the Samaritan woman in John 4 brings up with Jesus. They also set up their own priests and made their own sacrifices. For the Jews, this was intolerable. But notice, what we have in account is not of Philip and the others uh, looking to correct them first about their doctrine. Rather, they pointed them to perfection. That's what they did. They pointed them to the embodiment of righteousness and grace. They pointed them to Jesus and told of his gospel. They knew that there was no other hope for these people. They knew that it wasn't their mountain or their priest or their sacrifices that were going to send them to hell. Rather, it was the absence of personal faith in Christ that they needed. 
So they proclaimed Christ as they were scattered. But this isn't where necessarily where we find ourselves this morning, is it? I mean, we are not people who have been persecuted and scattered from our homes, like we said earlier. We, Grace Fellowship, are living in a time of peace. We are free to worship. We are free to proclaim Christ. We are free to preach the word. So what do Christians do in times of peace? Well, if they're wise, they get ready for the next season. This means they commit themselves to the preaching of the word. They commit themselves to the gathering of the saints. They commit themselves to the breaking of bread. They commit themselves to the prayer. Is this sounding familiar? Acts 2, 42. They store up. They get ready. But let's be honest. What normally happens when Christians have peace? Well, they get spiritually lazy. They forget about the mission at hand. They become concerned and sometimes consumed with their here and now. They get lulled to sleep and lose their vigilance against sin. They become soft and easily upset. They get their priorities out of order and don't set aside time to dig deep with others in the scriptures. They don't make time to spend with others in prayer. They watch a whole lot of Netflix and spend way too much time on social media. A very convicting question that David Platt posed during this pandemic has made me once again rethink my approach to ministry. And I hope it does the same for you. Here's the question. Would your people be enabled, equipped, empowered, to make disciples and gather together as a church and be the church without any dependence on any programs to do it for them or any professionals to do it for them, but with just dependence on the Scripture and Word of God. This question is very convicting for me because there is a constant rip in our society to be consumer-driven in every aspect of life. For the most part, American people don't see the need to do anything. Rather, I can pay someone to do it, right? Now, understand, as a person who just had his home renovated, I'm very thankful for professionals. Don't misunderstand me, but we have to be very careful in carrying this over to our spiritual lives. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you two warnings this morning. Two warnings for two different parties, but I think both parties need to be in the room for both warnings, okay? First warning is to myself and other pastors on staff here, as well as pastors and staff on other churches. Here's the warning. The warning is to not just do ministry for others. Don't just do ministry for others. Casey's uncle is a retired colonel from the Army Special Forces. When you think Army Special Forces, you probably think, them are some bad dudes, right? And you're probably right. (laughs) Bad dudes. Guys that go up into top secret missions and take out terrorists. But uh, the 
truth and the actuality of what they do might be a letdown for you if that's what you think. According to my wife's uncle, special ops missions like you see in Zero Dark Thirty, a movie about the special forces taking out bin Laden, are actually a very small part of what they do. The main thing that special forces do is they go in and they train nationals. They train nationals to do combat, to fight, to have warfare, so that they can fight for freedom themselves. For our Hollywood-type culture, this might seem less than thrilling. But much like this, God has called myself and others on staff here, as well as the pastors, to take a salary and minister to Christ's local body, Grace Fellowship. But if we look into Ephesians 4, we see that the call for the pastor is to what? Equip the body for the work of ministry. And I'm thankful to God that, that already, for a long time, this has been emphasized in this church. Just this past week, I attended a ministry created and run by a member of this church. The goal is to invest into young junior high boys, college guys, and older men through mentorship and gospel-centered studies. Upon arriving in January, my wife was asked to be a part of a book club where her and several other women went through Noel Piper's biographies on uh, godly men's wives. Many of you here at Grace Fellowship have been equipped and you're carrying out ministry. Praise God for that. And praise God that the plan is for many more to be equipped. But I share that warning for pastors to let you know that's where we're going. That's where we're going. So when we see the church in Jerusalem being scattered at a moment's notice, we don't see them needing training on evangelism to Samaritans. Probably because that was part of their coming to Christ. When they came to Christ, they understood they were on mission. They were understood they were to pass what had been given to them on to someone else. And they did that in all different kinds of ways. So here's the second warning. The second warning is to the body, to you guys. Here it is. Don't believe the lie that there is something in the scriptures such as a Christian attender. No such thing. Someone who simply attends but never does the work of ministry. Someone who never labors to get to know others. Makes sacrifices to spend time with them. And studies the scripture in order to help others apply it to their lives. Someone who is a Christian attender might actually be a Christian pretender. Christ has called us to more than taking care of ourselves. He's called all of us to take part in his mission. And I know that if you're a member of this church, like I said a minute ago, then you know that's what you've been called to by God. That's been preached here. But this might be a good reminder for us. So bottom line is this. We must be diligent during seasons of peace and persecution to remain zealous and faithful to the mission of God. Why? This is our third point. Because our joy depends on it. And that kind of took an odd turn, didn't it? I thought that point might be for the glory of Christ. No, because your joy depends on it. Also for the glory of Christ. 
But the point that we hear, see here in the text is the gospel brings joy. Philip and the church are scattered to a city in Samaria. They preach the word, proclaim Christ, and the Holy Spirit works powerfully through them to heal the sick and save the lost. Verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. The gospel gave the scattered Christians hope. What Jesus had given them couldn't be taken from them. Therefore, they took Jesus' call seriously to store up treasures in heaven that could not be stolen nor destroyed. The more they spread this hope of the gospel, the more their hope was fueled. Every time they saw God perform the miracle of regeneration over and over and over, it reminded them of what Christ has done in them and what he's doing in this world and the day of glory. They watched people's lives change as they put their hope in the name of Jesus. And when these new Christians became believers, they not just became their friends, but their eternal brothers and sisters. They became family. They shared with one another and blessed one another. They were the visible representation of Christ's kingdom. This is why there was great joy. You know, early in my Christian life, uh, I was taught that there's a difference between joy and happiness. You guys heard this? Joy is the sacred gift, and it's pure, spiritual, and worthy of pursuit. While happiness is the secular knockoff. It's tainted, fading, and if you're chasing it, then you're wasting your life. Later on in life, I began reading John Piper. And if you're unsure about what I think about John Piper, my first daughter is named after him. Piper taught me not to distinguish between joy and happiness because the Bible doesn't. He taught me Christian hedonism. Many of you know this is the belief that we were created as joy or happiness seekers. We're constantly on the search for happiness. But what Christian hedonism says is that the greatest happiness in this world is found in Christ. It's found in knowing him, in exalting him, in being led by him, and being used by him. Only in Christ do we find full satisfaction and complete contentment. This made so much sense. But what my early Christian life experience had taught me was that following Christ won't be nearly as exciting as what the world has to offer. That's a total lie. Young person, if, you, if someone's told you that, you're going to have to give up a lot of things to follow Christ. Remember what Christ said to his disciples when they told him that. Oh, but you're going to receive a hundredfold now and in the life to come by following me. Church, my relationship with Jesus makes me more financially wise. Jesus makes me a better neighbor. Jesus makes me more sexually pure. Jesus helps me make better decisions. Jesus makes me less selfish and more loving toward others. Jesus makes me a more patient parent. 
Jesus helps me to forge a healthy marriage. Jesus makes me less anxious and more confident. Jesus helps me deal with disappointment. And all these things bring great joy and happiness to my life. But church, all of these that I just mentioned are bonuses. They're bonuses. They're the fruit of what worshiping King Jesus brings, which is the ultimate happiness in my life. Worshiping him in song makes me happy. Doesn't it, Adam? (laughs) Worshiping him in obedience makes me happy. Worshiping him in evangelism makes us happy. Worshiping him in deep meditation and study, uncovering truths about him, makes us happy. Worshiping him by sharing his love with our neighbor makes us happy. Worshiping him by standing up for justice for the weak makes us happy. Church, when sin entered our hearts, its desire was to take away our happiness in God. And that's exactly what it did. But here's the good news. (laughs) Now, through Christ, God has restored our happiness in him. So drink deeply of the gospel. (laughs) Sing it in your homes. Tell of it in your workplace. And pray, give, and go to see it taken to the nations. Nothing else will bring you and those you take it to more joy. Joy that withstands hardship. Joy that withstands persecution. Joy that withstands suffering in this life. So church, don't settle for anything in life that doesn't give you the greatest joy. Don't lose sight of what season you're in. Be faithful to the mission. And don't ever forget who's in perfect control. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you're good. You're so good. It is such a wonderful privilege, God, to exalt you this morning through your word, God, that is exaltation of you. To stand before brothers and sisters who desire is to exalt you and to remind them and myself of your glory and your goodness and your grace and your joy, your joy, Lord. God, you say that you want our joy full, full. God, give us a bigger perspective on life and on suffering God, we love you and thank you for what you've given us this morning through your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, I pray that your soul has been edified through the singing to Christ and, uh, and by the word being preached about Christ. So go and tell everyone what you've heard today and uh, come back next week and we'll be here if you have anything going on throughout the week you need help with um, anything please let us know Adam and I here at the office and we would love to pray for you we'd love to find support for you whatever that might mean Um, anything physical need whatever let us know we would love to serve you and and guests please make sure you talk to somebody and ask questions before you leave any questions that you have 
We just had our men's monthly meeting this morning at 7. Sorry for those of you guys that missed it. Um, it's just been the crazy, uh, I know some of you have told me that you wish you could have a little more notice than an email on Thursday about the monthly men's meeting, and that's my fault. I'm sorry. I will, uh, I'll get better at that coming out of COVID. We're going we're gonna to try to get those groups started up again and, and, uh, and, and get some better uh, communication going on. So, but ne- next, we'll meet next month as well, and uh, hopefully, church, in the next month or two, we'll get things started up uh, back to normal. That's the prayer. That's the plan. Uh, just pray that plan with us. Uh, so maybe it'll come to fruition. Um, but thank you for being here. Adam, do we have anything else? Okay. August 16th, we'll have our new members class. Uh, if you've never been through our new members class, we would encourage you to go through. I'm actually going to maybe go through it myself and become a new member. Um, so, um, But we would love for you to, to seriously come be a part of that. Even if you're not interested in becoming a member, going through it doesn't make you a member um, but going through it is a requirement to become a member. So if you're just interested in learning more about the church, that's a great place. Uh, is it 10 weeks? 10 weeks? Good. Uh, 10 weeks uh, meeting early on Sunday mornings before service and getting to hear from your, our pastors about what our church believes, what makes us distinct from other local bodies. So uh, we love you, Grace Fellowship. Thank you uh, for, for everything you're doing that's unseen. I know a lot of you are doing a lot of things unseen to love the body, to love those outside the body really well, and we appreciate you. So have a great day. See you next Sunday. Master.